Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, produced in partnership with Arab Studies Institute. I am Malihe Razozan. Khalil Bendib is away. It was a very important election indeed because it was a landmark in this new sort of regime consolidation, which is basically an African-style presidentialism, putting uh, President Erdogan as a single man, controlling the bureaucracy, all the state apparatus, as well as the civil society. So in that sense, I think it was a historic election. So what does that mean in terms of regime consolidation? So the new presidential system came into effect with the referendum of April 2017. What we're going to see after the elections is basically President Erdogan will be in total control of all state apparatuses. This week, we bring you the first part of an in-depth conversation about the presidential elections and the ruling Justice and Development Party, or AKP, in Turkey, with Sinan Berdal, a visiting assistant professor of international relations and Middle East studies at the University of Southern California. Later in the program, Israeli novelist Dorit Rabinian talks to us about her most recent novel, All the Rivers, which tells the story of the relationship between a Palestinian artist, Hilmi, and Liat, a young Israeli woman. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. On June 24th, for the first time in their country's history, voters in Turkey headed to the polls to elect both parliament and president on the same day. The elections took place under a state of emergency, and President Recep Tayyip Erdogan won re-election with an outright majority in the first round on 52% of the votes. Mr. Erdogan will assume new powers approved in a 2017 referendum, the powers that have transformed what was a ceremonial role into a key executive role in Turkey. In the parliamentary elections, in spite of losing seats, Mr. Erdogan's ruling Justice and Development Party, AKP, with its nationalist allies, retained the overall majority in parliament after an unexpectedly strong showing by the nationalists. To understand the June 24th elections in Turkey, we turned to Sinan Berdal. He is a visiting assistant professor of international relations and Middle East studies at the University of Southern California. Wominas Shahram Agamir spoke with Professor Sinan Berdal and asked him whether he would agree with the prevailing view that the June 24th vote was the most important election in Turkey for many decades, and if so, why? It was a very important election indeed, because it was a landmark in this new sort of regime consolidation, which is basically an African-style presidentialism, putting uh, President Erdogan as a single man, controlling the bureaucracy, all the state apparatus, 
as well as the civil society. So in that sense, I think it was a historic election. So what does that mean in terms of regime consolidation? So the new presidential system came into effect with the referendum of April 2017. What we're going to see after the elections is basically President Erdogan will be in total control of all state apparatuses. Veto players still left in the game, but he's basically the most powerful man in Turkey right now. So in that sense, this was an important election. It was also important because the election actually came at a time when there is increasing talk about a lurking economic crisis in Turkey, and that explains the timing of the elections. These elections were snap elections. They were called by the president in a surprising fashion. And this is actually one of the reasons why he resorted to having snap elections because of the lurking economic crisis. In other words, he wanted to go to the ballot before the actual outburst of the economic crisis. And in that sense, you know, I think he was successful Actually, after the elections, we see why he wanted to have the snap elections, because if you look just in general, we see a major decrease in the party's electoral voter turnout. We'll definitely come back and talk about that more in terms of the analysis of the outcome of the election. Who was contending you know, for power in this election? There were two main blocks running for the parliament. Yes. Also, of course, the presidential position, while the leftist HDP was on its own. Just to be clear, it's a leftist uh, People's Democratic Party. Can you talk about these two coalitions, these two blocks, and why is it that HDP was uh, running on its own? Yeah, so this is actually very new in current Turkish political system with the referendum of last year. The political system now allows political parties to form electoral coalitions. That was not allowed before. So this is an important experiment in that sense. So the first candidate, Erdogan, of course, who won the elections, he built a coalition with the two nationalist parties, the Nationalist Action Party and the Great Unity Party. A lot of the commentators made this comparison with the Nationalist Front of the 1970s. So although electoral coalitions are new in Turkey, fronts are not. And these fronts, especially, you know, this idea of a Nationalist Front goes back to 1970s. It was a part and parcel of the counterinsurgency against the socialist left and against the union movements. And radical labor. Exactly, exactly. And labor. And it became kind of successful in mobilizing both uh, sort of street actions against labor, including thugs, attacks, but also, of course, also electoral alliances. Now, this is an interesting point in this respect, because, I mean, for almost two, three years, Erdogan had been building this coalition, you know, ever since he called off the negotiations with PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, and allied himself with the Nationalist Action Party. So in this sense, this is a new version of what in Turkish politics you would call the Islamist nationalist synthesis. Ideologically, basically, it is an alliance between Islamists and Turkists. 
And to be clear, after the military coup in 1980, this kind of a coalition or this kind of alliance was sort of fostered by the military. Exactly, exactly. So, and this is also unsurprisingly, of course, there is that aspect too, to that kind of coalition. So what I think what I want to say is that this electoral coalition is not just an electoral coalition. It's only part of a larger coalition that appears to the public eye. So the part that doesn't is not that apparent to the public eye is the coalition within the state structures, within the, you know, what some people call the deep state, if you will. So in that sense, I think your hunch is right. Again, pretty much like the coalitions in the 70s and the 80s, it is the, you know, cadres in state structures, especially in the repressive state apparatuses such as the military and the police force and the intelligence community, they are also behind this coalition, behind this idea of having a nationalist Islamist front against Kurdish movements and the left. Interesting. Of course, there was a blowback to that sort of uh, fostering Islamist movements as a result of what you have in terms of uh, some of these Islamist forces now ascending to power. Okay, I talked about the first part. Erdogan's coalition is called Jumhur coalition. So he selected this word specifically. It means people in Arabic, and it kind of resonates well with the idea of uh, Jumhuriya which means the Republic, or the President, which is Jumhur Bashkana. So he kind of selected that idea mm. of the Jumhur as a sort of a larger signifier or as an effective signifier, claiming, of course, that this block represents the people of Turkey. And that was very, I think, apparent in his also electoral discourse. He incessantly kept talking about being both native and national. Now, this was confusing to some observers. They didn't really understand why Erdogan was using the Sendaites, basically. Why not just national or just native? I think the idea is that, you know, sort of to give his electorate the impression that, well, you can be native, but being native is not enough to count as a loyal citizen anymore. You also have to be national. And to be a national or nationalist citizen means to vote for Erdogan. In other words, anybody who doesn't vote for Erdogan or who's against Erdogan, is an opponent of Erdogan, is potentially, although being a native, is potentially against the nation, an enemy of the nation. I thought it was a very exclusionary discourse to the extent that it criminalizes or stigmatizes opposition. It's a pretty sharp dichotomy. Yeah, you're right. Yes, yes. It's not uh, that foreign, I think. If you belong to any of the minorities in Turkey, that's always been uh, part of their experience, I think, to be a native but not still count as part of the nation. But now this group of, you know, this stigma is kind of larger now. And so this is in terms of the history of the republic, I think we could say that although the state is centralizing in the form of Erdogan's regime or in his person, you get an unprecedented level of centralization in the state apparatus. 
But that also means that an unprecedented level of exclusion of masses from the imaginative political community. Maybe we can talk more about that. I think we basically have, although the regime consolidation appears to proceed from sort of with elections or through elections or through some sort of electoral mandate, I think it has huge legitimacy problems. Now, the second block was called the Millet Coalition, the Nation Coalition. The running candidate was Muharram Inje, which is an interesting person. He was a candidate in the Republican People's Party before he was actually, he tried to unseat the current chairperson of the Republican People's Party. So he kind of represented an opposition voice within the Republican People's Party, which is the main opposition party at the moment, kind of center-left Republican founded by Mustafa Kemal, mostly representing what in the Western media would call secularist Turks, mostly getting votes from big cities, especially the coastal areas of Turkey. And most of the time also from middle classes, upper middle classes with higher education. So India was an interesting choice because he rose to the occasion right after the failure of the Republican People's Party to convince Abdullah Gül, once a fellow of Mr. Erdogan, to run as the opposition's candidate. The word was that one of the allies of the Republican People's Party, the Good Party, which broke off from the Nationalist Action Party following their alliance with Erdogan, apparently they rejected this candidate from AKP. So after it became clear that Abdullah Gül, as the former president and as the former political mate, of President Erdogan was not running, then Inja rose to the occasion. And people weren't really, at the start, there wasn't really much of uh, excitement about him. But fairly quickly, a lot of people got very excited. The Kurds, the HDP, sort of winked at the possibility of supporting Inja in the second round. So that also created an important hype. This coalition consisted of the Republican People's Party as the main opposition, the Good Party, E Party, which broke off from the Nationalist Action Party, and the Saadet Party, the Felicity Party, which is the Islamist party from which Erdogan's AKP broke off 20 years ago. They excluded the HDP from this coalition, leaving HDP actually under the risk of not being able to reach the 10% threshold. HDP is the leftist People's Democratic Party that some people party. characterize it as being pro-Kurdish. Kurdish movement is the backbone of this party. The Kurdish movement, which also is a leftist movement at the same time. So the Kurdish liberation movement defines itself as, as a leftist movement. And this was a coalition of the Kurdish liberation movement with the Turkish. It's a very vague term, I know, but we can include here socialists, anarchists, communists, feminists, LGBT activists, environmentalists, and other ethnic groups as well. So it was a very diverse group. Uh, it defines itself as a radical democracy project. 
So just judging by that standard, I would say it kind of looks a little bit like Podemos maybe in its outlook. The downside of this, of course, was that the Millet bloc, Mr. Inge's bloc, still excluded the Kurds, fearing that bringing the Kurds into the coalition would alienate nationalist voters. So, but then, you know, this is a trade-off. Political parties are supposed to lead. So especially in elections like this, in these sort of moments of realignment, I thought it could be something worth trying because then the millet bloc could actually really put the claim forward that they represent all of Turkey. That's the opposition bloc, right? Yes. Inge could come out and say that they represent not only the nationalists, the secularists, the Islamists, but also the Kurds and the radical left basically shows the kind of timid opposition that the Republican People's Party have been engaging in for the last decade or even more. So in that sense, it's a continuation of, as I said, sort of timid nationalism of the Republican People's Party. Of course, what happened is, despite that, that a lot of the people who voted for Mr. Inge also voted for the HDP. So you had interesting sort of strategies emerging, people who voted for the HDP because they wanted the HDP to go past the threshold of 10%. In the parliamentary elections, they voted for the HDP, but in uh, presidential elections, they voted for Mr. Inge. We see HDP voters invoking that kind of a strategy. We also see um, uh, RPP, Republican People's Party's voters who resorted to that kind of a strategy. So this is also interesting. It's interesting in the sense that the voters in Turkey are becoming much more pragmatic, much more uh, strategic in their choices, and maybe less ideological. We'll see. This is also something to be watched for. I see a heightened sense of negotiation and bargaining in the voters. Now, we'll see. I mean, as I said, this is very new. We'll see how that, that, that will play out. Maybe a few words on the HDP. HDP ran by itself, which was very interesting. It also shows you the extent to which the counterinsurgency against HDP became successful in the last few years. HDP you know, chairpersons, both Mr. Salihattin Demirtas and Figyan Yüksekta, they've been put in prison. HDP activists have been put in prison. HDP offices were attacked, MPs were put in prison. And also, since the war between the PKK and the Turkish armed forces began, there was increasing pressure, uh, still increasing pressure on the HDP as enemy within, fifth column, that sort of thing. And so there was a lot, enormous pressure on the HDP there was enormous sort of criminalization and stigmatization of the HDP. So we see this campaign actually becoming successful, I think, in those elections, isolating the HDP to a large extent. There's these possibilities, especially with Mr. Inge's voters. There's some sympathy still for the HDP and for Mr. Demirtas. But, you know, again, the fact that the opposition bloc did not dare to include HDP in this electoral bloc 
shows us that HDP is politically isolated to great extent. But despite all of that, they made it through the 10% threshold, which is, I think, a success in and of itself. So these were the kind of three important blocks. The fourth candidate, Mr. Do Perinchek, representing Batam Party, see, that's interesting. Although he didn't really get any significant voter turnout, he does represent the Eurasianist state cadres, I believe. You know, this is a former Maoist turned Kemalist and now sort of increasingly nationalist, mostly supporting sort of Chinese theses or Russian theses in Turkey as well as in the Middle East. The reason I mention him is because I think he represents an important faction within the state structure and also an important faction for geostrategically speaking. So he represented sort of Eurasianists, if you will. So they didn't really get any votes in this voter turnout. So we can basically say that Erdogan successfully, I think, put them in check through this popular vote. And that will have some important, I think, also geostrategic implications. In sort of a Kafkaesque setting, one of the six candidates running for president was doing so from his prison yeah. cell. It, and this yeah, is a Demetrash. maximum security prison, Salahuddin Demitrash, right? Demetrash, yes. And he was arrested 20 months ago while he was a member of the Turkish parliament, as you mentioned, yes. and the co-chairman of leftist People's Democratic Party, HDP. Which is, I should say still, it's the third largest party in the parliament. 85 of their mayors have been purged. Yes, exactly. Exactly. We haven't also talked about that. They've been purged. These cities have been taken over by government appointees. In general, Turkish opposition is deeply fragmented. But it looks like thanks to Mr. Erdogan, they form an alliance this time around. And they had a unifying slogan that is tamam, which is in Turkish means enough, right? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, politically, just opposition to the strong man is not enough. So just an opposition to Erdogan, to his person, is not enough. Actually, he is counting for that. He's been preparing for that. This is his turf. He always personalized political conflicts. He always made political conflicts about him and himself. And that is the turf that he wants to fight, this political fight, because otherwise all his policies, his foreign policy, his economic policy, his social policies, in any other turf that you might uh, want to take this campaign to, I think the opposition had better arguments, could connect with also President Erdogan's base, except for President Erdogan himself. So whenever he makes this competition or this challenge about himself, he wins. I've been writing this for a long time now, and this point has been also brought up by several people in this campaign as well. Erdogan, as this figure unifying the opposition, is to that extent, it's a strong symbol for the opposition. It's a unifying symbol. As you said, the opposition is fractured. It doesn't really have anything else unifying as a symbol than Erdogan himself. And this is actually its major disadvantage. In other words, the most unifying symbol of the opposition is also its most sort of, I think, its its weakest also link. Because 
other than the opposition to Erdogan, there is really no political program unifying the opposition. And I think this was really a major weakness. We needed to hear in this election campaign more about why is presidentialism bad for this country? What kind of constitutional system does the opposition have in mind? What kind of economic policies, social policies are they supporting? So it was mostly about, again, a referendum on Erdogan, which turned out to be to Erdogan's advantage. And all historical experience actually confirms that. Again, if you think about, for example, Germany in the 1920s and 30s, and even in the early 30s, you can't really say that, you know, the majority of the German people were for uh, the Nazi party. So there was an enormous, again, a big chunk of Germans were opposed to the Nazi party. There were major parties on the left, both the Communist Party and the Social Democratic Party. They could not get together to sort of form a unified ruling bloc, not just an electoral bloc. We can see that in the numbers. Look, Erdogan got 52%, whereas the AKP, his party, got 42%. Oh, there's almost 10% difference between the two. His personal image actually allowed him to win. On the one hand, that was the unifying theme for the opposing coalition, but that was also their weakness. What were the concerns and the issues on the part of the public? One of the things that sort of stands out is the issue of Turkish economy, which has been experiencing difficult times. Yes. The country's currency, Turkish lira, has lost more than close to 60% of its value since Mr. Erdogan was first elected president in August of 2014. Yeah. And inflation is around, I think, 12 to 13% and is on the rise. Yeah. That's also putting pressure on the interest rates. And the country also has a problem with foreign debt is going to reach to about 60% of the GDP by the end of this year. That's the estimate. For the capitalist class and the investors who want to invest in Turkey, which was an attractive place for many of these people, they're having doubts and misgivings about it. And that seems to be acknowledged by people who are in charge at the level of the state in Turkey. Can you talk about the state of Turkish economy and how it has impacted the population? Also, did this become a factor in the elections that we just witnessed on June 24? Going back to my earlier point about the weakness of the opposition. So what Muharrem Ince suggested, uh, or the Republicans People's Party is suggesting, is basically they can run the economy better than Erdogan, because they can run it better by IMF standards, basically. You're never going to win elections in Turkey by saying, oh, we're going to, because the uh, the past with the IMF, right? I mean, thinking back to the 1980s, the 1990s, all the structural adjustment programs, when the Republican Party is trying to sell itself to international investors, to the big bourgeoisie, giving them assurances about how they can actually beat uh, the AKP in being better neoliberals, they're not realizing that the time for neoliberalism is over. It is over for good. You know, so you can't go back to the 1990s. I believe for both for the voters and for international investors, Erdogan seems to be a safer choice. And it was interesting how 
the stock market reacted to these elections yes. because they were not looking for a split parliament and a presidential no, office. No, not at all. I mean, even if you look at reports coming out of you know, places like Morgan Stanley, for example, just a few days before elections, in terms of international investors, of course, I'm talking now, nobody really says, oh, it's, you know, Turkey is a good in a good path and blah, blah, blah. Although most of these analysts admit to the fact that, oh, this is this regime is becoming increasingly authoritarian. Nevertheless, they keep saying, well, I mean, there is really no other choice for investors. And at the end of the day, when investors have this choice between democracy and profits, they choose for profits. Of course. And that goes for domestic investors, that goes for international investors, I mean, for capitalists. And that also goes for Erdogan's base, small capitalists, small shop owners, small property owners, or potential property owners, right? So, as I said, the Republican People's Party, despite this lurking economic crisis, has no real alternative. So how would you describe Muharrem Ince himself? He was the candidate for the People's Republican Party. Some accounts have him as social democrat. Would that be a fair uh, characterization of him? I think so. Most people in Turkey, you know, they would say, oh, you know, uh, Turkish social democracy is different from European social democracy. We don't really have real social democracy because we didn't have a strong working class in the 19th century and all that. Yes, Turkish social democracy wasn't born out of a working class movement, but out of a Kemalist movements, which was a state building sort of nationalism, yes. But given all of that, if you look at the social democrats all over the world right now, in the United States, in Europe, or in Turkey, first of all, they are all nationalists as opposed to internationalists. So they do have this attitude of voting for or supporting wars as opposed to peace in wartime, right? I mean, their voting record is, I think, pretty clear everywhere. So they are very nationalists. And also, again, they don't really have a alternative economic or social agenda to what's happening right now. Um, we see that, I think, you know, if you look at, for example, Germany, or France, right? I mean, everybody was sort of rooting for Macron. He wants to pass these laws which are, um, you know, taking away a lot of the social and economic benefits of the working class. So I think if you look at the center-left or social democrats all over uh, the world, they're still defending this kind of already dead, I think, third way or from the 90s. So there's this, I think, nostalgic mood with social democrats. It's clear that Mr. Erdogan's Justice and Development Party has been a party of neoliberal capitalism, and they're kind of proud of that, if you like. Can you talk about some of these economic policies that the ruling party has implemented since its ascendancy to power in 2003? And again, how does that manifest itself among the population? Obviously, the working yeah. class, the urban poor, or even certain layers of the middle class. First of all, again, just as an addendum to the last question, first of all, I think that the Republican People's Party is also pro-neoliberalism. That is the problem. I mean, they're not really, as I said, they're not really coming with an alternative to neoliberalism. They might 
criticized, for example, um, uh, use of subcontractors or you know, the flexibilization of the labor market here and there. But even in their own municipalities, municipalities run by uh, the Republicans People Party, by the Social Democrats, we know that they've been employing subcontractors. They had actually strikes happening with their own workers in these municipalities. So I don't see a consistent opposition to neoliberalism uh, within the ranks of social democrats. Why is this important? Well, first of all, we need to understand the social base of Erdoganism, the social base of, of the Justice and Development Party. Now, this again goes back to urbanization. Urbanization basically starts in uh, the mid 50s, 60s, and 70s. And we have, of course, you know, in terms of political geography, we have uh, the rise of shanty towns or the so called Gece Kondus in Turkey, which corresponds, again, if you look at, you know, comparatively with the rest of the third world, you know, the barrios or the favelas sure. and stuff like that. And so during the 60s, 70s, and up to the military crew, these neighborhoods were mostly dominated by the left. By the left, I mean the communists, the socialists. So the socialists were the ones who were helping the uh, immigrants from rural areas to settle down in uh, the big cities. So the coup and the counterinsurgency before and after the coup wiped out the left from these neighborhoods. And of course, the only networks left in these neighborhoods were the Islamist networks which were also supported by uh, the state as part of their counterinsurgency strategy. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but even in the late 80s, as far as, you know, 1987, 88, 89, up till, you know, 1994, actually, the Islamists didn't really score any points in municipal elections. Right. So in big cities, for example, people still voted for social Democrats predominantly. So what happened is, again, going back to this question about social Democrats, maybe they really didn't come up with a new urban policy. They didn't really understand what was happening with urbanization. And what happened here is that the once shantytown dwellers, they became homeowners property owners. The first generation shantytown owners became second generation property owners in the 80s and the 90s. And to me, they constitute, in my view, the backbone of this Islamist movement, uh, you know, of the AKP. Pretty much like all Islamist movements in the region, also Turkish Islamism is based on a medium-sized property owners. Sinan Birdal is a visiting assistant professor of international relations and Middle East studies at the University of Southern California. He spoke with Shahram Agamir. Please tune in next week for the second part of this interview. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
written explanation for rejecting Dorit Rabinion's latest novel, All the Rivers, Israel's Education Ministry official Dalia Fenig noted, quote, intimate relations and certainly the available option of institutionalizing them by marriage and starting a family, even if that does not happen in the story between Jews and non-Jews, are seen by large portions of society as a threat on the separate identities of Arabs and Jews. End of quote. All the Rivers, a lyrical account of a forbidden romance, tackles the ultimate taboo in Israel, Jewish supremacy in the name of ethnic survival, the very premise of Zionism. Hidden in plain sight, at the heart of this irresistible tale is a heartfelt indictment of Israeli apartheid, done in such a beautiful, flawless fashion that the reader almost does not notice. Khalil Bendib spoke with Dorit Rabinian about her latest novel, All the Rivers. In this space between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, you don't see too many mixed couples that their nationality is conflicted. There are some, but to be frank, I was more into the conflictual and more struggling and I was taking a chance to explore both of the Israeli and the Palestinian identity via this love affair. Yes. To somehow depict the portrait of their homelands, of the landscapes of their psyches, and to somehow suggest that they share much more than they differ. Yeah, that was beautifully done. It was very moving. Despite her many misgivings, your narrator, Liat, this young Israeli woman living in New York, is perfectly able to fall deeply in love with a Palestinian man. What makes Liat, this Jewish-Israeli woman, able to even temporarily transcend the chasm between Israel and Palestine to this extent? To be honest, I think it's this unresistable Hilmi, <laughs> the Palestinian young man that she comes across with, and she's charmed by him, and she's so infatuated by his personality, by his talent, by his earnest ways. And I think that she's drawn also to somehow a reflection of her own self via Hilmi. They somehow serve one for another at the surface to learn about themselves and to reveal their own concepts of education, of mentality, how much there is a private among all the collective elements that they carry, being an Israeli or being a Palestinian. It's like having the neighbor to be the most intimate and the most alienated person. And they have a chance, because New York suggests, a territory of freedom, a territory of liberty, in a sense that they are allowed to observe one another closely and equally, because equality is something that we lack here yes. in the Middle East. And that comes through very clearly. It's sort of a neutral ground. And they're both more, as you said, freer to be themselves. 
One aspect of your story that came through powerfully to me and runs throughout the book was this natural proximity between Liat and Hilmi, the two lovers, on a cultural level. Liat was surprisingly familiar, seemingly comfortable with at least some Arabic culture. She knew some words, she knew some stars. You might expect it in somebody from an Egyptian Jewish family or Iraqi Jewish family. But this person is an Iranian Jew. Where did this familiarity and comfort come from? You seem to have some of that yourself. Did you grow up in that kind of environment? As the Israeli kids who were born in Israel to those immigrants who came from the Arab countries and grew up, raised among and together with those Israelis born to Eastern European immigrants, we made this unique mixture of East and West in our mentalities, in our ways. And this is what being an Israeli raised and born personality to be. This familiarity with the Arabness, this sense of closeness towards the Arabness. Yet, there is a very defining power that has this sense of intimacy to be recognized as fearful as well, as dangerous. It's a dubious notion that us Israeli kids, we have observed this sense of belongingship to the Middle East, yet the knowledge that we are an island, we are a Jewish ghetto among Arab nations. It's a contradiction, this paradox. It may be the most fragile balance that Jewish-Israeli consciousness is based on. I was also wondering whether the fact that Liat is from an Iranian family, and perhaps that meant growing up in an area that was closer to Arab centers, a population, or at least used to be in the 50s, they would end up next to the Arabs, next to the Palestinians. As a Misrahi Jew, did she end up growing in an area that's geographically closer to the Palestinian centers of population? And is that part of why she feels a little bit familiar with them? true that the Israeli demography was constructed under this element, that the heart of Israel, the strong, powerful centrum, was populated by Eastern European Jews, and those who were arriving from the Arab countries or the Muslim countries were placed in the peripheral areas that are bordering with the Arab neighbors. Yes. Uh, yet, I chose to place the ad in a more prosperous area of the Israeli social economic centrum. Having her carry the weakness of the outcasts wouldn't allow her to risk so much falling in love with this charming Palestinian man. She has to have a jeopardy by this love, and she has to question where her heart goes and where her other loyalties, which are national and cultural and religious loyalties, go. And this is where she has the conflict. If she would have been an outsider to the Israeli society, she wouldn't be losing so much by loving him. One example of that familiarity that, and even empathy that's at the central core of Palestinian symbolism, and it's very rarely acknowledged outside of the Palestinian community, is the key. On page 31, very fleetingly, <laughs> in just two lines, you say about Hilmi, who had lost his keys on his first date 
with Liat, that wonderful passage about the key, I was thinking how many Israelis are going to understand that, let alone Westerners, since your book has been translated so many languages. You say, I was struck by a dim echo of guilt and by the inescapable symbolism, the loss of his keys and the jingling presence of my own. That's the, ironic. Metaphor. It's, it's so ironic that an Israeli and a Palestinian get to hang out one night in downtown Manhattan, and there goes the Palestinian man losing his his keys for his apartment in Brooklyn. That can happen. Yes. <laughs> But I think the ad is also very much aware of the symbolism. They are both very much rejecting the echo of the ethnic, the conflict, that is somehow luring behind their back or following them wherever they go. And they have to let go of this suffocated multitude of all the Israelis, all the Palestinians that are uh, spying on them as they become individual to one another. Once Hilmi finds his keys, they go to his apartment in Brooklyn and then start the love affair. No, I don't think they lose prejudice in one night, but they do allow themselves to become private, to become personal. And this metaphor, if you hadn't flagged it, I mean, if it wasn't actually the word metaphor that woke me up to it, even as a Palestinian <laughs> sympathizer, I would have missed it. I'm wondering how many of your readers who don't know about this great symbol of the keys would catch that and understand it. Israelis are very much aware of they it. Are. What is for the Palestinians the most almost sacred yes. symbol of sense of home, of their loss, of their land, of their sovereignty. For us, the greatest fear, because their memory is being held and given from one generation to another, and it somehow eternalized their refugee state that is passed from one generation to another and never sold. But it's also a symbol of at least faint hope that they still have the key and they're still dreaming of coming back, just like the Israelis say they came back. So it's a very powerful symbol. On page 29, you had a wonderful uh, bit of dialogue and people on a bus that I thought was very revealing of the situation. It says this person here was riding on this bus, I think it was Liat, she says, Then I heard the passenger in front of me talking to the driver. I remember her telling him about her sister-in-law's daughter, who was one of those women who had fallen in with an Arab. Quote, some guy working construction near where they live in Lod. He's from Nablus. Oi, oi, oi. I remember the driver responding in a <laughs> gasp. Then he clucked, God help us. And the other one says, and he doesn't look Arab at all. <laughs> and the driver says, those are the ones you really have to watch out for. She told him how the man had pursued the girl, spent lots of money on her at first, showered her with gifts. Her poor sister-in-law had begged the girl not to go with him. She'd cried her heart out, but nothing helped. She dated him for a few months and was already pregnant when they got married. She says, now she's riding away there in Nablus. You can't imagine. The driver says, dear God, two kids and pregnant again? God cursed them all. She hardly had any teeth left. He beats her so badly. And then the driver says, those animals, for them to nail a Jewish woman is a big deal. 
it's a very harsh memory, but somehow my way to capture a very fundamental element of living war that we all carry in our consciousness. Yes. And it's a result of 2,000 years of diaspora that Jews were living among other nations in communities of other religions. And Jews were capitalizing their identity and preserved it and transferred it from one generation to another due to this isolation of not mixing. Mm. And what also always strikes me about, not only in your story, but many other narratives coming from Israel, is the sense of race. Now, they keep talking about the people, the race, as if it's one race, and when we know, both you and I, that it's a social construct. He says this remark of the woman who says he doesn't look Arab at all reminded me of a recent event in, in which 16-year-old Ahad Tamimi, Palestinian girl resisting occupation, the Israelis are stunned that she's Arab because of her blonde curls and her blue eyes. How can she be Arab? This is incredible. You know, I come from Algeria. We had the same reaction from French occupiers who thought it's impossible for an Algerian to be blonde, blue-eyed, and that caused them a lot of problems. And this is a big part of the problem that your protagonists face, isn't it? This feeling of separateness, that here's a race, here's another race, here's a one people completely No, we're separate. all Semites. <sighs> Not so many people who were aware of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict are aware of the fact that we are cousins. Yeah, that's another myth, in my opinion, that has nothing to do with anything. The bond is a linguistic bond, that the languages are related, Arabic, Hebrew. It could be that both the leaderships in Palestine and in Israel have a great interest of having us being so ignorant of how much we can relate, of how much we share, of how much we mirror one community to another. Actually, one thing I liked also about the book, beyond the beauty of the story and the writing, is the political implications. It doesn't strike me as a symmetrical situation where all both sides, you know, I don't think that at all. I think there's one side with power and the other one with very little of it. And it, I think it's reflected in the relationship. I felt your story was sort of a big metaphor for the problem that here are two people in love with each other. They seem to be equally crazy about each other. And there's one side that is absolutely adamantly opposed to any future, not the Palestinian guy, who's the Israeli woman. For whatever reason, you started explaining she has a lot at stake, she might lose a lot. It was the Israeli woman who just would not settle with this relationship for she wouldn't give it a chance. She wouldn't give it a chance, whereas the Palestinian was really hurt by that. And he, I don't want to yes, reveal too much yes, of the story. It's a very sad uh, Greek tragedy kind but of But I can absolutely reveal the fact that Liat is the one who has the privileges. She's the one to be growing up in a free state and to be a master of her movement, of her choices, of her life. Well, Himi was under an occupation ever since his first day to be born in Hebron and be raised in Ramallah. So it's a crucial element, this inequality between them two. I couldn't tell them as equal. Yes, and that's what touched me on a political level, not just the lyrical and the narrative level, which are so beautiful. It also touched me on the political level because there seemed to be as you say, a clear inference that the two sides are not at all equal. And one has more 
power over her own destiny, and that's part of the problem. There was, in 1948, the war going on between Jews and Arabs, and there is one side who had triumphed, and the victorious one is the Israelis, and we're more responsible for achieving peace with our neighbor, and this is why I don't see any symmetry possible. Okay, that's what the, your story really shows. It reads like a Greek tragedy, really, so conflicted is this love with the fact that from the start is doomed. The book has been translated in 17, at least, languages. That oh, I'm we're rich 25th 20, by uh, now. But it became embroiled in serious controversy in Israel. Tell us about what happened, briefly. Oh, yes. How come we've made it through a literary talk without mentioning that the ban of this novel by the Ministry of Education? It happened two years ago. There was a report by a ministerial committee that responded to, our, to the artistic committee that recommended this book to be included in the curriculum for high school. So it was banned by the education ministry. Yes, they announced this book to be dangerous to the Jewish identity of the young readers, and they find it to be encouraging to assimilation, encouraging to have a relationship with, and I quote, the non-Jewish residents of the country. Which is at the heart of Zionism. That's why, to me, it was fascinating. I became aware of your book, Think Reading the Wall Street Journal, was talking about this controversy and made me want to read mm -hmm. it. So in a way, they helped the book by banning it. There is a saying by Federico Fellini who says that every censorship is an ad campaign sponsored by the government. This is the very first time that there was any book ban in Israel. And wow. it was banned, let's remember, from the curriculum. It became a mega hit success and it broke many records due to this ban. So on the one hand, it's perfectly understandable and even predictable that a book like this would disturb so many and the power structure in Israel. It's perfectly logical because consciously or subconsciously, it questions the whole edifice of Zionism as a separate idea where Jews have to be separate than the Arabs. On the other hand, there's some good news that there are enough people even there in Israel who loved the book, first of all, and who actually wanted to be taught. Isn't that good news? <laughs> you are a good reader, Khalil. <laughs> Not only that you interpret very well the fact that if there was a danger to the Jewish identity in this book, wasn't due to the relationship of the young Israeli woman with the young Palestinian men. It was the fact that the respect between them, that it was subversive yes. by the fact that the neighbor, the enemy, the other, whatever you want to name, the Palestinian entity... There was a recognition that there is someone out there that we share a destiny with. How are your Israeli readers receiving that? I'm sure a lot of people love the book and a lot of people hate it. Nobody hates it. No, nobody, nobody hates it. You know how many right-wing voters who became my readers due to the ban are writing me letters and telling me that this book, although they vote to the right wing, when they read the book, they felt the love for this place and the love for the people of this place. People in a sense of humans. Mm. And those are the letters that I'm most proud of, that I could shift something of the attitude that a person would have towards a stranger. It's such a huge movement in the world for me. It's a very subversive book in its own way. It proposes something that flies in the face of Zionist propaganda. I mean, it really deflates it by saying, no, 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 
They're not necessarily enemies. They're not subhuman. You can fall in love with them. It's profoundly subversive to an ideology that says, no, we're surrounded by terrible people. I can understand the reaction you got from the government. I was imagining a lot of right-wingers would also hate the book. The fact that you're Iranian, that you're Misrahi Jew, does that also make you more vulnerable to those attacks? Being a woman, being related to the part of the population that is not associated with the Ashkenazi Eastern European establishment makes me more violent. It's true. The book is dedicated and addresses a person that I loved in New York, and his name is Hassan Khouani, who was a very, very talented and very special artist from Ramallah. If that would be the climax, then the book is a rescue act to have his memory keep on going. And now he's being held in so many more hearts than only mine and his family. Doris Rabinion is the author of the novel All the Rivers, about a love affair between a Palestinian artist, Hilmi, and an Israeli woman, Liat. She spoke with Khalil Bendib. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Mm-hmm.